Hello and welcome to Paincast, conversations on pain and physiotherapy. This podcast is brought to you by the Pain Science Division of the Canadian Physiotherapy Association. I'm Tiffany, a physiotherapy student at the University of Toronto. I had the pleasure and privilege to attend the annual Canadian Physiotherapy Association Congress in Quebec City last month. This episode serves two purposes. First is to bring a part of the Congress to you. During Congress, I met so many fellow physiotherapy colleagues and students, and you will get to, in a way, meet them through this podcast. Second, Paincast aims to facilitate conversations on pain and physiotherapy with researchers, clinicians, students, and patients, and this episode is one of the best ways to do this. This episode compiles 10 interviews I had during Congress, featuring physiotherapy students, researchers, new grads, and experienced physiotherapists from all over Canada and abroad. These 10 interviews cover musculoskeletal, neuro, sports, and cardiorespiratory care across pediatric, general population, and older adults care. I ask about their views on pain, how they manage and support patients in pain, and the value of physiotherapy in their context. I'm really excited about this episode, and I hope you will enjoy it. This episode is quite long, so I have added timestamps of each interview in the episode description if you'd like to jump around the interviews. Here we go. So we're here at the plenary session. We just finished our keynote, and my very good friend Aaron has kindly agreed to be my first interviewee. Aaron, can you introduce yourself? And what are you doing? Absolutely. My name is Aaron Wexler. I'm a final year physiotherapy student at the University of Toronto. Um, and I'm currently at the CPA National Annual Conference. Awesome. So this is Paincast and I'm curious to hear different people's perspective on pain. What is pain? Well, uh, for starters, it's important to recognize that it's an experience and it's not just one thing set in stone. So. Uh, in, in school, we talk about how pain is a combination of the biopsychosocial understanding of everyday life. Uh, so there's obviously the, the physiology that happens behind pain, but then there's also the mental and cognitive components of it as well. Uh, there's a lot of emotional components to pain, and it is a true experience that does incorporate all of the body systems and feelings and emotions that come with it into one. I think it's a great answer. It's very important to highlight how comprehensive pain is. It's an experience. It's not only something's wrong with the body. It's all comprehensive and affects affects the whole person. So you've been to multiple internships. Can you highlight an example? What is the role of pain in your practice? Well, um, that's a great question. Pain does a whole lot. It's one of the biggest reasons why patients come to see us in the first place or one of the reasons why patients need our support. So it does seem to be that, you know, it's often considered a problem and that's what people want to get rid of. But in, in hindsight, it's not actually something that we're looking to get rid of, but we're looking to solve, essentially. So we want to understand the main root of the pain rather than just get rid of the pain and then it could possibly come back again. 
So I feel like when talking to patients about it, I try to explain the importance that we're not just looking for a band-aid solution, but something long-term to ensure that this isn't something that will continue to impact their life and uh, unfortunately take away from their quality of life. So we, we try to understand the, the parts that contribute to her pain and see what we could do to help mitigate those accordingly. Do you have a very remarkable story, a patient story, that you helped treat it that is relevant to pain? Oh, wow. Good question again. Um, so the first one that comes to mind, and I, I hope I do a good job communicating it, is uh, when I was working at Lynnhurst. Um, Lynnhurst is a spinal cord injury rehabilitation hospital. And one of my patients I was working with was experiencing quite a significant amount of neuropathic pain. Uh, and with neuropathic pain, as I'm sure you know, it's not the most straightforward pain to try to treat or manage. Uh, it comes on randomly. There's not always a cause for that sometimes. And because of that, it can be quite discouraging. It can be frustrating and it can be devastating at times as well because that's all you can think about. So uh, in my conversations with this patient, I've had a lot of experience talking to them about when it happens and what helps and make, what makes it better, what makes it worse. But a lot of it really wasn't, you know, able to be determined. Like they didn't really know a lot of the reasons why. So we talked a lot about some alternatives to regular medication and what would typically be used. So we spoke about mindfulness and um, ways to help mitigate those those feelings of pain on a different level, in a different way. And that's one of the biggest things like I learned from the experience is that there's not always one way to approach pain. And pain is such a subjective thing and it's, if it impacts everyone differently. So it's not like there's a one-size-fits-all solution. It's about finding something that works for the person that you're working with and doing your, your best to, to cater your approach to them opposed to having one solution and making the person fit into that solution each and every time because especially with pain where it's such a, such a personal thing that really impacts life as a whole, uh, it just doesn't work that way. That is awesome. You'll be a great physio. You are going to be the best physio. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. What is the value of physiotherapy in your context? In my context, I think physiotherapy is one of the most valuable professions in the healthcare field. Uh, hopefully that's an unbiased opinion, but that's what I do believe. I think that not only are we experts in movement and motion, but we have really good insight when it comes to uh, making recommendations and providing support when changing daily activities and doing things that make people who they are, bring them joy and help them live the life they choose, not one that's dictated by their condition or their pain or whatever it might be. We are um, very good at innovating and thinking outside the box to help achieve the goals that we set in front of us. I think that's such an important skill and something that is uh, really drilled into us throughout our education and our experiences working with people so being able to be not just like another professional, but to be a team member and a support to these people on more than just the, more than having them be another number to us. I think that we really abide by having an individualized and client-centered approach, which I know not every health professional uh, sticks to. So that really does help us connect with the patients and do what is best for them and not just best for what's best for us. That's great. That's amazing. I really echo your passion for physiotherapy. Thank you so much for being my first interviewee.
Have a great rest of your Congress. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Tiffany. We're here at the Exhibitor Hall, and my friend Diana has kindly agreed to be interviewed by me. Diana, can you introduce yourself and your current practice? Absolutely. Um, my name is Diana MacArthur, and I'm from Kelowna, BC. I live in Kelowna, BC. I'm from Newfoundland. Uh, currently, I practice as a mobile <laughs> neurological physiotherapist and also as a college instructor for therapist assistants in Kelowna. That's amazing. One thing I like about being in a CPA Congress is to meet my colleagues and future colleagues from all over Canada. That's wonderful. So this is PainCast and I'd like to get to know physiotherapists' relationship with pain. First question, what is pain? Um, well, it is a neurological phenomenon. So basically pain all comes from your brain doesn't matter if there's something wrong or not. So if there's something orthopedically wrong, your brain says, hey, stop it, and that comes out as pain. But also a lot of pain can be paradoxical and happen even though there's actually not an orthopedic issue. So if pain is all neuro, 100%. That makes it very relevant to your practice. Sure does. What is the role of pain in your practice? I think for me, for the most part, I do like my clients aren't necessarily coming to me with the acute like back pain or knee pain that most like not most sorry a lot of physios are used to i do get that because people with stroke spinal cord injury they still have a body right so they still get the same injuries as everyone else but most of the pain i deal with is going to be chronic neuropathic neurological pain that is kind of doesn't make a lot of sense and you're trying to figure out um why this person is having that response to movement or positioning or whatever so what do you do with those kinds of pain well a long answer isn't it um a lot of it is actually I, I did a course recently in graded motor imagery which was really cool through the neuroorthopedic institute so i've been doing a lot of that like um sort of um recognize things playing games trying to get the brain to relate more positively to movement and to touch and all that kind of thing and not um, respond with a pain signal so i'm doing a lot of that a lot of mindfulness a lot of awareness training a lot of mirror therapy and um, like sensory input stuff. So lots of touching and integration and different sensations and all that, that sort of jazz. There's a lot, but because pain is such a huge thing. Um, but I'm, I'm trying as I get older and do physio for longer, I'm trying to approach it more as a neurological phenomenon and that we need to change the way we're thinking rather than the way that we're maybe, you know, doing manual therapy and that kind of stuff. There's nothing wrong with that, but I find by the time my patients are in pain, it, that isn't useful anymore. All right, I think it's a hopeful message that we have a lot of tools that we can use, not only manual therapy, but a lot of things about the brain that we can tap in to do with pain. Last question, what is the value of physiotherapy in your context? Well, I feel like I'm selling myself, which is not like really my jam. Um, honestly, I think I think neurophysio is super valuable. I do wish there was more people doing it um, because a lot of my job is about function and existing in life and being good at existing in life and enjoying your life. And so the value I think is is giving people back their value in themselves. So feeling like they're able to relate to their world in a in a valuable and meaningful way. Is that too existential? No, this is what I love about physiotherapy because life is not only about work or family, but how you engage with your body in these contexts means a lot. And helping people get back into those contexts, what they love to do, is such a meaningful thing. Thank you so much for being interviewed. I really appreciate that.
Thanks for interviewing me on the fly at The Social. Now I have the honor to interview one of the keynote speakers, Blaze. Blaze, can you introduce yourself, your practice, and your current role? So I am physiotherapist at Quebec City, um, owner of PCN Physiotherapy Clinic, founder of The Running Clinic. So I specialize in running, and I see a lot of runners in, in my practice. Amazing. A lot of runners have a lot of pain too. In your context, what is pain? So for runners, there is different type of pain, I will say. There is the pain that uh, you don't really listen because you want to train and because you know that after some days it will be okay, it will be fine. And there is some pains that is a good message that, uh, that your body tell you to stop to rest because you go over the capacity of the tissue that's the acute pain classically on a tendon on the pfp etc and for some runners sometimes we have chronic pain where uh, uh, running is often not the cause but is one of the treatment i use to chronic pain so in terms of what do you do with pain it really depends on the type of pain yes so if we take classic clinical case the patient uh, run a little bit too much of d plus denivelation and come with uh, achilles tendon pain since one day two day one week and at this point i will just say that he did too much and he need to rest so we do bicycle we stop to run uh, we hill lift etc and at this moment we are in a proct- protection mode to the opposite of the patient that comes to me and say uh, my Achilles tendon is painful since uh, six months and at this point I know that uh, and he still run most of the time and at this point I know that stopping running maybe won't help him and I need to have a better mechanical stress quantification and uh, explain that pain is maybe not the best indicator of the condition and certainly not of the tissue and the tissue health so we can moderate maybe on the short term a little bit the mechanical stress but the goal is not to focus too much on pain and focus more on function and still uh, tell to this type of patient that he can run but with a good dosage uh, running more often but less at the time uh, sometimes two times a day Uh, often for runners i put two mechanical stress per day exercise running or other uh, type of a stressor uh, with the goal to create adaptation and to be in the adaptation mode and not the protection mode, like in an acute condition. That's great. So one of the very big roles in your practice is the education piece, educating runners about their pain and what is the best approach for that. Yeah. I will say that most of my practice with runners are education. And uh, when I say education... uh, I speak often about the mechanical stress quantification or the psychological stress quantification. So uh, in an acute condition, we want to quantify the number of stress we apply on the tissue, means the number of K, the speed, the denivelation. And when we have more chronic pain, I speak more about the psychological stress quantification, means that uh, I try to avoid the fear avoidance and other thing that can be uh, problematic for runners. 
In your keynote speech, one of the key messages is that we need to evaluate the messages that is around social media or common misbeliefs about shoes, about pain, about anti-inflammatories. Can you highlight one of the examples of, just like a prime example in your context, what are some of the misbeliefs and how do you approach these misbeliefs? Yeah. So I, I can give the example of the, the anti-inflammatory uh, pills. So NSAIDs are used by 90% of the runners. Uh, they are used during competition by 50% of the runner. We see promotion and publicity at the TV to take NSAIDs. And we know that NSAIDs is not good to repair tissue. And we know that NSAIDs kills 16,000 people in U.S. every year. So for sure, we are not in good practice here. And the commercial bias influence the way people take NSAIDs and we need to do education. So we need to educate health professionals and educate runners and everybody. What's the side effect of NSAIDs? What's the danger of NSAIDs? And when use it and when not using it? So uh, is an example of the lack of education that make a lot of people believe that they need to take NSAIDs because inflammation is not good and the commercial bias contribute to this bad practice for runners. Yeah, this is very important. As you said, for runners, actually a big part of your practice is education. And you talked about how you educate patients about their pain, what type of pain is it, what is the approach to that pain, and also about the role of anti-inflammatories. What do you wish to see moving forward in the area of runners or runner physiotherapists? What do you want to see moving forward like as an improvement? I think that all is a question of uh, education. means that I think that physios need to be well educated on evidence-based because we have a lot of uh, better practice that's coming and most of physios don't just don't know because they are not in the congress because they are not uh, reading the literature because they, they are not listening podcasts and different things so i think we need to to be curious and to be uh, educated first we need to look for where the information is coming from because one of the problem is that there is a a bunch, a lot of information on the social media and on the the platform of education that is not very good, that is not relevant, that is uh, uh, sometimes biased by commercial uh, incentive. So, um, so I will say that's the second question. So uh, try to to learn more, to be more educated. The second one is: is your source or a good one? Do you take the, the, the information from experts and people that know what they speak about? And question about the commercial bias that can influence the knowledge you received. And when you have the good knowledge, when you, uh, you know that it's a good source, uh, you need to help to uh, diffuse the information. And I think that uh, every channel is a good one. Can be YouTube, can be a podcast, can be a presentation, can be anything. Courses we give, lecture we give for runners and for other general people. So yes, that's the point. Yeah, going back to being evidence-based in your practice. So you do do some of these knowledge translation on social media. How do people find more about what you're doing? 
So we have a website, therunningclinic.com, uh, laclinicducoureur.com. We have in six different languages. So you can find in Japanese, uh, Portuguese, uh, Spanish, Italian, French. But the thing is that on the website of The Running Clinic, we offer a lot of courses for health professionals about best practice for runners, but also for diagnosis, for treatment of different pathology. Uh, we have a teams of um, researchers that uh, look all the literature on those specific topics to be sure to be updated all the time. We have absolutely no commercial bias, so that's one of the key things to be sure that our information, we can say what you want, it doesn't change our business model. So I can say that uh, minimalist uh, shoes is better for runners or maximalist shoes is better for runners doesn't change our income and our uh, business. So uh, we are very rigorous and we look for all the literature every week about the terminology running runners on Medline and other database. That's the way uh, we, we do. Yeah, thank you for taking the initiative to do that, like really translate the knowledge in the literature to the layman, to the healthcare professionals. Before we end the interview, do you have any final words you want to say to the audience? Except that I am um, sorry for my English. <laughs> Not my first language, you certainly see that. But I think that physios must take the place. I say physios, but it's health professional in general. Take the place of the media to diffuse uh, rigorous information and not biased information. Thank you so much for your time, Blaise. Welcome. I am here at the Congress dinner event, continuing to look for physiotherapists to be interviewed, and I met Lizzie. Lizzie, can you introduce yourself, your background, and your current practice? For sure, thanks for having me. So my name is Lizzie Holding, and I'm a school-based physiotherapist. What does that mean? Yeah, so uh, school-based physiotherapy, uh, for me, it means that I travel to 60 different schools all over the Ottawa and Rockland area, and I help to provide recommendations to the staff on how different kids, uh, kids with disabilities or, or kids with different conditions can be included into the curriculum, can access the curriculum and just be healthy and participate at school. What ages do you work with? So I work with any age that can be at school, which is going to be four years old all the way up to 21 years old. And what are the typical conditions do you see or a variety of anything? Yeah, so I do have a really huge variety of conditions. Um, the two that kind of spring to mind is I do have a number of patients with autism and another a number of patients uh, with cerebral palsy. And then I also have a lot of different rare uh, genetic conditions, but many of my patients, they're the only kid that has that condition. It is very diverse. Is that challenging because you're seeing kids with so rare conditions? Um, it can be. It can definitely be challenging. I have to spend a lot of time on the NIH, uh, NIH Rare Diseases website, um, but they have really excellent resources. I'd absolutely recommend them, and they're going to let you know, like as a physiotherapist, what you need to look out for. So there's there's been a big learning curve. Um, just little things like looking out for you know high risk of aortic dilation. That's going to kind of be a bit of a of like a flag in your mind that you want to be careful about high intensity exercise like little things like that I would never have known before so yeah I'm glad the kids have you as their advocating physiotherapist in your context what is the role of pain in your practice 
Yeah, so in my practice, there are a number of kids who have chronic pain. Because I have a consultative model, I don't unfortunately have the ability to kind of have this regular weekly pain management uh, treatment that I think, I think in order to treat pain, chronic pain, you need to have a very consistent and fa fairly frequent visits. And so I'm not able to do that. But that being said, when we are developing their curriculum, their accessibility recommendations, we will make recommendations around how we can manage their pain how we can make sure that their, for example, their gym curriculum isn't exacerbating their pain and what the strategies the school can use if there is a pain flare-up. Do you work with most of, mostly the teachers or the kids? How, how does that process work? Yeah, so I work with the whole team. I work a lot with the um, educational assistants, so EAs. A lot of kids will have an EA that uh, it, they can do exercise programming with or supports them in accessing the school or supports them in, in their gym or in other uh, functional activities for their curriculum. Um, so I do a lot of work with them. If a kid doesn't have an EA, I'll do a lot of work with the teacher and, and also you're always going to be working with the parents to make sure they're on board with the plan. What are some of the strategies you suggest or provide for EAs and parents for, to help kids manage their pain? Yeah, it's a, yeah, that's a great question. Um, so one of, one of the big things is having that conversation about allowing the kid to still access exercising programming or, or their gym curriculum. With a lot of kids, they can develop a fear of movement over time. And, you know, either, for a multitude of reasons, they can actually have a lot of decreased participation in physical activity in general, whether it be because of peer pressure or because of their fear of movement or because of the fear of the staff who maybe don't have as much education on pain and they think that pain is necessarily going to equal harm or tissue damage, they might be actually pulling that student back from participating in this kind of physical activity. And we know that physical activity is one thing that can help manage pain. That is wonderful. I'm glad to have you on in this episode. Thank you so much for your time. I've met a new friend, Stephanie. Stephanie, can you introduce yourself? Um, I'm Stephanie. I'm a year two physiotherapy student at Dalhousie. My background is kind of more in the medical sciences. I did a degree in physiology and interdisciplinary medical science. And um, my passions right now kind of lie in inpatient care in critical situations. Wow, that's very amazing. In, in critical situations, what do you mean by that? Um, I'm most interested right now in burn care, so I had the opportunity to attend the Canadian Burn Association Conference. Um, and actually one of my favorite talks there was about kind of the pain management for burn survivors in kind of the inpatient acute burn care as well as in the ICU. I am just starting to learn about burn care. We're doing our unit right now and it, it is fascinating to see the stages you go through and the rehab process. In that context, how do you define pain? Um, well, kind of what I've learned and gathered through different either courses or talks about pain is that pain is kind of an emotional and physical experience that's personal to each individual. Um, it's not necessarily a purely physical, you know, nociceptive process. There is a huge psychosocial aspect to it as well. How does the psychosocial aspect manifest in burn patients? 
Um, well, I'll be honest, I'm still kind of, that, that's just an area I'm interested in, so it's not something that I've practiced firsthand yet. Um, I am doing a placement in burn care later this year, so I feel like I'd be better equipped to answer that question a little later. But um, I'm under the impression that oftentimes either physiotherapy or dressing changes for burn survivors can be incredibly painful, um, and that oftentimes uh, pharmacological pain management isn't enough. So uh, it's, it can be a very challenging area, and, you know, in the expert who came to speak to us about burns, the concept of a pain crisis where, you know, over the weekend a patient might not receive certain elements of their treatment program, kind of all weekend they're thinking about, you know, I'm going to be in so much pain on Monday when this comes, and that that can just amplify kind of the, the feelings of pain because of kind of the anxiety and the worry about it, and that really heavily influences their uh, lived experience. Yeah, that, that is really hard. So I know you haven't done your burn care. No, I, want to, I want to, I'm not a burn physiotherapist. It's just an area I'm hoping to work in once I graduate. But um, yeah, I just want to hit that home. <laughs> no, that's amazing. And really this episode is trying to feature physios of all stages of all different areas. And I'm very glad to have you on as a part of this episode. How do you see yourself supporting burn patients with their pain? Um, I could kind of see... Again, and I hope when I'm on placement I learn more about this, but just kind of with what I've learned, kind of trying to best manage pain through either relaxation techniques. I just read a study about kind of the use of virtual reality to help manage pain for uh, burn survivors while they're doing physiotherapy and having dressing changes, but just kind of by taking more of a whole person perspective of what the patient needs that day, whether that's you know to be pushed or whether that's to back off for that day, obviously understanding the different outcome measures. Um, and I think support through that kind of comes through understanding the patient's history with uh, pain in their hospital experience and kind of approaching care through that lens of understanding what fears and anxieties patients have and whether that's you know at a clinic or in the hospital what their experiences will shape their kind of future impressions and kind of taking all of that into consideration. What is the value of physiotherapy in that context? I, again, mo all of this is coming from the Canadian Burn Association Conference, so again, it's not something that I have experience with firsthand, but um, it's a huge element of preventing contractures and ensuring that range of motion can be achieved after a patient leaves the hospital and while they're in the hospital to make sure that as the skin is healing there's not scar tissue that restricts range of, restricts range of motion and that that has huge implications for functional outcomes down the line. That's a very interesting area to explore because you know, I can't imagine myself as a burn patient. I, I feel like that would be so painful. Is that ever a difficult reality to you, to be facing many people who have gone through very difficult, uh, traumatic accidents? Um, again, I'm going to speak more to my experiences on a placement that was in intensive care as opposed to kind of commenting on this from a burn patient perspective, just because, again, that isn't something that I've worked in yet. But I think... Sometimes it was, as opposed to viewing it as a challenging perspective for me, it was understanding that this is oftentimes the most stressful and scary experience of someone's life and uh, that it's very frightening for their family as well and kind of more approaching it from the lens of how would I want someone to interact with me or my family members and then kind of approaching care that way of, you know, understanding that just because someone is sedated or intubated doesn't mean that 
you know, they're not understanding what's going on or we don't know if they're understanding what's going on. So kind of being mindful of that in all interactions as opposed to thinking of it more so as this is challenging for me, kind of thinking this must be very hard for the patient and their family. And if I can play one small role in kind of helping them get back to their normal and help restore their quality of life, that's kind of where I want to be. That's amazing and that's very helpful, Stephanie. Thank you so much for your time. Okay, here we are at the last day of Congress. So I met Jennifer, who may be one of the other few handful people from China slash Hong Kong, because I'm from Hong Kong. So I was very happy to meet her. Thank you so much for agreeing to be interviewed. Can you introduce your background? What do you do? What kind of patients you treat? Okay, so I'm now a second-year PhD student uh, in rehabilitation medicine, but I have been working as a physio for four years in China's public hospital, like faculty of rehabilitation medicine. Um, So during that four years, we uh, treated three types of people. The first type is um, people who need occupational therapy. And second type is uh, people who have some nerve injury or spine injury. They uh, just went through post-operation and they need rehabilitation. So we just uh, treat them by using some uh, rehab techniques in the hospital. And the third type is people with musculoskeletal disorders. Also for those who have chronic pain, maybe there are... uh, healthy to some extent, but they just have some uh, long-term uh, chronic low back pain or neck pain, but their function are not that limited. So we treat these three types of people overall in the public hospital. But after uh, my bachelor in that major, I uh, changed my major to rehabilitation science, so it's more academic field. And now I'm still doing some research work in rehab for people with a chronic knee pain. That's very interesting and quite a wide variety of patients that you treat. And you do do with a lot of patients with pain. In your opinion, what is pain? What is pain? Pain is um, an alarming signal. So pain from your brain, 100%, but it is just an unpleasant experience an unpleasant emotion. Your brain interprets this emotion may be considered as an alarming signal, but pain doesn't mean you have harm in your body. It is just a signal, like a fire alarm. Maybe there's no fire in the building, but they have an alarm. So pain's just a signal to warn you that there may be something wrong with your body, but it's not 100% uh, true. I really like your analogy. You put it really well. In your practice, what is the role of pain and what do you do with that? Well, so um, I think for me, I just trying to make them realize that pain doesn't equal to um, tissue damage. And you have pain, but it doesn't mean you don't you, you can't do anything. You still can do exercise. So my role is just to do the patient education stuff and let them change their beliefs. Is that what you asked? Yes, absolutely. And that's also a, a, a one of the ways of how you support people living in pain is to assure them that not every type of pain needs to be worried. 
Yes, and actually pain has two different types, acute pain, chronic pain. Acute pain, uh, most of the time, may uh, implicate there's uh, damage in your body, but for chronic pain, sometimes there's uh, nothing wrong in your body, and there's your body may recover or heal already, but your brain still thinks um, there have some damage, so that will cause your central nerve system sense oversensation. You're uh, oversensitive for that bloating or triggers. I'm also quite curious because you practiced in China and you spent a little bit of time in Canada. Do you find the cultural difference to be something significant while you talk about these kind of concepts, you know, with Canadian patients versus with Chinese patients? I have to say, Canada is a well-developed country, so people are awareness of evidence-based practice, and they don't really rely on the experts' opinion or their friends' or neighbors' opinion that much. They trust uh, science more, but in China, we still rely on experts' opinion, even though there are scientific evidence over there to show that Exercise therapy is good for chronic pain, but still people think, oh, I have knee pain. I cannot walk, I cannot run. Running is damaging my knee. So the main difference results from the education level or the social economic level. So that's why pain is also a biopsychosocial thing. There are many factors can affect pain. People living in a wealthy country, maybe their life is less stressful, but in China we are so competitive and everyone is living a fast pace of life, everyone is overstressed. So chronic pain actually happens more in younger population because they are so busy with their work, they just sleep every day, they just sacrifice their time to work but not to do physical activities. That's why I think the prevalence of chronic pain is higher in China. Yeah, that's interesting to note, and I I do echo with that experience. When I was in my last year of high school preparing for that really important public exam after graduation, I did not do any exercise, and I was in chronic low back pain, like actually in chronic low back pain, and could not sleep without a towel under my back. But uh, I've gotten a lot better when I came to Canada and started incorporating a lot of movement breaks. That's very interesting. And then you talk a little bit about um, how it may be a little more challenging for Chinese people to accept scientific evidence and the expertise from professionals. How do you manage that? Do you just need a little more persuasion? Any strategies? Do you go around that? So the good thing is uh, my supervisor now in China, she's kind of a very famous expert. So his words really matters for physiotherapists in China. So during the conference, she acts as a persuader or a knowledge translator to, to, to spread this knowledge to the colleagues. And they believe in him. So I think still we need someone who is trained or who is educated enough to do this kind of role as a mediator. So people may listen to their uh, peers rather than the real research paper for the clinical practice. What is the value of physiotherapy in China? I think it's for rich people only. (laughs) 
Yeah, because yeah, people don't, people are not aware of the importance of physiotherapy, and they actually for the healthcare system, I don't think our insurance cover most of the physiotherapy service for the public, and also they just mix them with a fitness trainer. Uh, spa massager, uh, uh, traditional Chinese Chinese medicine. So yeah, I think they may be more interested into traditional Chinese medicines, manual therapy, things like that, rather than to find a really trained physiotherapy. So the role and awareness of what what physiotherapists can offer can be increased. Like the awareness can be increased in China. Thank you so much. And I'm here with Brendan, one of the executives of the Pain Science Division. Brendan, thank you for being interviewed. Can you introduce a little bit about yourself, your background, what you're doing? Yeah, for sure. Thanks, Tiffany.、Um, so my name is、uh, Brandon Pawlowski,、um, and、uh, I reside or I, I'm from、uh, Edmonton, Alberta. So a little bit back about myself. So、uh, I went to、uh, physio school in、uh, at the University of Alberta, and kind of the the story here is I guess I never really left <laughs> at one point and, and continued in kind of the academic stream. So、uh, when I graduated, actually, I did start working、uh, private practice. And、um, that took me through a lot of good clinical learning experiences, and、uh, I think one of the best thing for me was when I first started. I, I would often get cases that I was, I was very confused about, and when I mean that, I mean it's very complex pain pro-、uh, profiles,、um, and also just different emotional and, and other psychological factors. And、um, I think for me,、um, that kind of made me、um, think about my practice and, and kind of what else I need to learn. So that kind of was kind of the inception of, I guess, my learning journey. And then、um, from there, I, I kind of started getting into、um, a little bit more information. So I, I was able to go through the University of Alberta's postgraduate program in pain science.、Uh, so I completed that. I think it was in 2017 or so. And then that kind of just kind of stemmed an idea that said, you know what? Let's let's maybe go. Further from here, and then let's maybe take it to a, a research side. So, so given that,、um, I started my、uh, my PhD at the University of Alberta in、uh, 2020, right before the pandemic started, <laughs> and.、Um, And yeah, it's kind of it's been a good learning journey so far. Where I'm a PhD candidate in the faculty, so a little bit of my research is、um, I, I I like to say that I study implementation science, and, and what I mean by that, and more specifically, is in Alberta we we ha- certainly have a problem with primary care access to high quality interventions, and for low back pain specifically. So if you're going to go see a, a physician, things that we really want to see based on guidelines is that. You, Not all back imaging, or no, not all back pain is imaging right away.、Um, certainly not acute low back pain. That's no red flags.、Um, so that's one thing we want to follow. Other is is, is appropriate um, medication um, prescription. So not, yeah, as you know, we don't need opiates for for the general amount of the population. Or even、um, that talk we kind of talked、uh, went to a little bit earlier. Yeah, maybe we don't even need NSAIDs. Um, um, there was a big literature review that came out that maybe NSAIDs in the short term and long term actually、um, don't maybe not. Provide uh, uh, total effectiveness,、um, and lastly, is we should give people the things、um, that work with guidelines, which is education, exercise, <laughs> research,、uh, and、um, so with that,、um, yeah, we're we're looking as as a team as a few outcomes as implementation. So does it work?、Um, can we implement it in certain places in Alberta? And healthcare utilization outcomes. So will we see less、uh, less imaging? Will we see hopefully、um, less repeat visits? And、uh, and, and lastly. 
lastly, do people get better, right? So like, do these people actually benefit from this type of care? So that's the research side. Um, my clinical side now is um, I have an assistant lecturer role at the University of Alberta, and uh, what that means is I teach clinical education in our teaching clinic, um, which has been great, yeah. It's kind of be able to connect with students and, and really start to, um, yeah, build their like foundation in a clinical environment. Uh, that's amazing that you've went from physio school, you went into practice and realized that there are many unanswered questions and wanted to go back and do more research about it. Now that you're in a clinical educator role, what is pain to you and how do you teach that to students? Yeah, that, that's such a, a big question, isn't it, Tiffany? And I'm sure through your own learning uh, journey in school here, I'm sure that definition has changed. Number one, when you went into physio school and you started learning about, let's say, neuroscience part of it, right? So we can define it from certain neuroscience definitions, whether whether it's nociception, whether it's neuroplastic pain. And then I'm sure you started to get into the clinical environment when you start to see people with different pain presentations, and maybe even yourself. So then we got to kind of think about, well, what these definitions are really good um, I think from like a, a perspective of we need to define things but if I tell my patient you have neuroplastic pain does that actually help them in the grand scheme of things yeah probably not right so I think the biggest thing from a clinical educator role is to help students understand how to identify you know different types of pain whether we're in acute phase chronic whether we have like neuropathic aspects to it can we identify psychosocial factors with our patients that we can um, explore and maybe if it's not us that we can refer to you know the, the right outlet whether it's psychologists um, or other healthcare practitioners so I, I think that that's a loaded question as far as what what does pain mean and I think it depends on the individual and of course the environment that you're in as well have you used chat GPT to ask the question what is pain you know, I haven't actually. I should. <laughs> yeah, that's actually one question I haven't used the uh, chat GTP, uh, but I, I will. That's a good, really good question. I should ask it. Yeah. And one of the things uh, we did in this Congress as the Pain Science Division Committee is to host a breakfast case study on a very complex low back pain case. And we did use ChatGPT, thanks to your suggestion, to see what this mighty AI tool has for pain management. Um, what do you see as the, you know, the future of interaction between physiotherapists, AI, and pain? Yeah, that, that, that's, that's a great question. Um, I think um, as a few talks we went to that we're on a brink of kind of like figuring out what, how it's going to help us, right? Like any tool, it's a tool unless, it, uh, sorry, it's, it's nothing unless you know how to use it properly, right? So you're not going to use a screwdriver to hammer in a nail. That would be like a really weird, weird thing, right? <laughs> I guess you could like just kind of hit it through there. Um, so what I see with, with AI in, in, in clinical practice is to help get information um, to that clinician in, um, in a way that they can figure out if it's, um, well, I should say this, that can get them the information in, in, the, in a amount of time, because let's face it, clinicians often don't have time to go through reading, you know, 20 systematic reviews. So let's say if that tool can summarize it and then give them some big highlights and maybe even like future direction of like where to go with it, um, I think that's going to be important. Um, and I also think um, this is on the brink as well, and I'm not sure you're even aware of this, is, is from like um, administrative management side. So for example, uh, Microsoft bought some um, uh, EMR tool, which a uh, health records tool. Um, I think they bought it 
earlier this year, so in 2023. And what they want to do, and they're already piling it in the States, is to have a passive AI listener in the background during clinical visits. And what will that do? It'll, it'll make 95% of your clinical chart already. You just have to check it as a clinician to make sure what you actually talked about, what you actually observed is actually accurate. And of course, you got to sign your name too, because that's you that's still putting in the clinical record. So there we go. That's the administrative thing that if that saves you, let's say, an hour of your charting throughout the day, great that's an hour of extra time you can potentially spend with your patients on in that one on one environment as well so i think we're going to change it the other thing i just want to bring your attention to and and part of our lab at the university of alberta so i'll give them a shout out into um, the kachak lab um, which is the lab i'm part of is the other half is very computer engineering and, and one thing they're looking at as well is um, can preferences um, so more more specifically um, practitioner preferences change our interaction with our clients so for example if you could have your perfect practitioner deliver you the perfect message um, based on you know difference let's say height um, based on how you like to see a practitioner um, that's AI generated um, could you get a better outcome potentially um, based on what it tells you so like th there we go we can see some directions potentially where we're seeing this in healthcare Wow. How would people want to, if people want to know more about the research from your lab, where, where should they go for that? Yeah, so you can, uh, you can contact me um, and then, or you can go at the University of Alberta website, search in rehabilitation medicine, and then look under Kawchuk Lab and all our uh, information will be there for, for contact. K-A-W-C-H-U-K Lab. Thank you so much for your time, Brandon. You. It was nice working with you in the pain science division. Thanks, Tiffany. Okay, on the last day of conference, I met Ken, who is a fellow student at McMaster. And one very cool thing that he's doing, he's doing a combined degree of physio and PhD. Would you like to elaborate a little more on that and introduce yourself? Yeah, so I am a dual degree student at McMaster University. I'm currently uh, in my fourth year as a PhD candidate at, at McMaster in the School of Rehabilitation Science and second year in the Masters of Science in Physiotherapy, uh, again at McMaster University. So this program is designed to target uh, clinician scientists so that they develop the understanding of the research background as well as the uh, uh, aspects or implications of research in clinical practice. What inspired you to take on this huge dual degree? Uh, I'm not really good at making decisions, so when it ha came down to choosing whether I wanted to do research or go into clinical practice, um, I had a hard time figuring out what I wanted to do, and lo and behold, they had a program uh, available to tackle both aspects that I found a little bit of interest in, and I got lucky enough to get into this program, so kind of was able to... Uh, pursue both my passions and uh, now I'm here. I echo that because I almost went into an MPT PhD program because I really do like research and I wanted to be a physiotherapist. Why don't you talk a little bit about your research? So my current research uh, thesis is focused on uh, fall risk among individuals with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Uh, I'm particularly, particularly interested in uh, outcome measures utilized to predict fall risk, um, but uh, kind of a synopsis of what my thesis has come to find is that uh, 
fall risk is not easy to predict. Using outcome measures is not uh, the ideal way of going about it, especially if you're looking at balance and mobility. Uh, unfortunately, there's no real outcome measure out there that is sufficient to predict falls in those with COPD. And actually, as a matter of fact, no outcome measures are available to predict falls in older adults in general, which is surprising. So when focusing on a population such as COPD, it adds on a, a bit of extra um, complications, especially with the complications with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, with breathlessness, with the physiological changes uh, of air trapping, and uh, as well as the uh, psychological impact of feelings of breathlessness and uh, avoidance of activity, subsequently uh, diminishing an individual's ability to physically function on a daily basis and potentially increasing their risk of falls. So in this population, fall risk is a, a major issue, but uh, without identifying those with a, a greater risk of falls, we can't really target our strategies, which is sort of the general idea of what my research is about. We were chatting a little bit before the recording, and you mentioned a few aspects about the fear of falling and how that might have some relationship or connection with the fear of pain. So, um, yeah, I, I, I don't have much of a stake into pain research. Uh, however, I do have uh, a general understanding of how fear and avoidance tactics can affect one's uh, life and the way they live it. So uh, in those with COPD, breathless, breathlessness, dyspnea is a key aspect in understanding why an individual with COPD may be at a higher risk of falls. Well, if uh, you've ever been in a position where you have to, you aren't able to breathe, you have a difficult time catching your breath, uh, and you are frantically trying to uh, catch your breath, that's a scary moment for somebody to go through. And especially if there's no immediate way to address that, uh, your response to future or similar contexts in which your breathlessness was induced will uh, have an effect on the way you choose to live your life. So if I go up one flight of stairs and at the top of the flight or even at halfway up I start to feel breathless, then the next time I see stairs I might avoid stairs. And what happens if you avoid stairs, you start to avoid all stairs, and then you start to take elevators, you start to use fewer opportunities to engage in physical activity throughout the day, uh, and this subsequently makes your physical function, your muscle strength worse, your mobility worse, and it kind of snowballs into fragility, into further disability for individuals with COPD and thus increasing your falls risk. And that's a roundabout way to say that we don't really know exactly how the connections work, but in general, my hypothesis is that breathlessness has a stake in the way that fall risk is, is prevalent among the COPD population. So I guess in that kind of connection with pain, um, similar to that of breathlessness, if I were to replace dyspnea with pain, uh, say for example, going up the, up the stairs, you're halfway up the stairs and you feel excruciating pain, you're going to associate going up the stairs with that pain, you're going to eventually stop using the stairs, use the elevators, and what's that going to do? You're going to start to rely on other aids to mobilize in the community, thus reducing your physical function, your ability to interact with your environment. Uh, may induce some uh, decrease in strength and mobility and uh, which can subsequently lead to decreased quality of life and 
with the instigation of pain, maybe your threshold may change such that you're, there are lower intensity activities that start to instigate the pain and that avoidance cycle repeats itself with even more, uh, even less intense activities uh, more and more. Yeah, that is a very interesting connection and it's for the first time I've thought about that. Do you think the way you would support people with dysmia and fear of activity from dysmia, how would you support them and do you think you would have a very similar approach of supporting them versus supporting people in pain? Yeah, so uh, I've learned a bit about uh, dysmia and a bit about pain management and uh, I've come to an understanding that there's no way of really getting rid of you know, chronic dyspnea in COPD. And in a similar extent, there's uh, evidence to demonstrate that chronic pain is hard to, or almost impossible to get rid of. And it's more so living with your pain, finding ways to live with your breathlessness that seems to be the uh, applicable and successful strategy, uh, trying to re-establish that relationship with your dyspnea and your pain and to uh, ensure that you're living your life through your pain and through your breath breathlessness and it's no longer a, a remediation strategy for your pain or dyspnea it's it's a uh, a compensatory strategy and uh, hopefully an, uh, not uh, an avoidance strategy but more so if you for example with breathlessness if you have a hard time mobilizing uh, for a certain distance, maybe we should consider mobility aids, a uh, four-wheeled walker with a supplemental O2 tank. So these are comp compensatory mechanisms that help with continuous mobility in the community. Uh, I'm not too sure what the equivalent would be for pain, but I'm sure there's uh, aspects where you can start to compensate for certain uh, uh, pain uh, perceptions such that you can still engage in the community. Um, but uh, that's, I guess, that's my take on that. I think I answered your question. No, that's really good. Thank you so much for your time, Ken. That was really insightful. Thank you. Okay, so we're now actually not in the conference. The conference has ended, but one of the great things about being in a conference is to be able to meet people from all walks of life. And I meet this lovely lady from Switzerland, and we were going to do an interview during the conference, but timing didn't work out, so we actually got each other's contact and hang out after the conference, walked around Quebec City, and uh, have her try the Canadian experience of beaver tail. It was okay. <laughs> All right, back to topic. Can you introduce yourself and uh, your practice? Yeah, so um, hello, um, and thanks for having me in your podcast. My name is Isabel, and I am half from Belgium, half from Venezuela, but I'm actually living in Switzerland at the moment. I um, was trained in Belgium, and I did a master's degree in the University of Birmingham with the Advanced Manipulative Physiotherapy course in the University of Birmingham. So... Uh what kind of physio do you practice right now? Um, so at the moment I am working in a private practice and it has been four years that I've been practicing right now. So I managed to be working also in hospital setting and with all kinds of patients. But mostly now my main patient types is musculoskeletal and pelvic floor disability. Very cool. In your context and in your opinion, what is pain? So 
pain is essentially is a signal that is perceived by the brain um, through a stimulus that happened in the body tissue. And so depending on the context where the pain is um, perceived, um, we do have a sensitivity sensibility that is can, that can be higher or lower depending on the context and the circumstances where the, the, the person is. I, I agree that sometimes uh, depending on the circumstances again some people might have a higher tolerance of pain and other uh, a lower tolerance but that has also a genetical component I think. Yeah absolutely. What is the role of pain in your practice? role of pain um, the first stage is a acute stage right and that can last for within seconds until a week and that for me the role is to show there's something that is needed to be changed in order to not endanger the body for a certain stimulus and then we move on to the subacute stage that can last for three weeks And then after we have the chronic one, the chronic one that is uh, from three months onwards. And that for me, the, the chronic pain is um, like a footprint of the stimulus that is still ongoing. And for some reason, there are multiple factors that are prolonging the, the effects of pain. So because these factors were not assessed, were not addressed. So yeah, so that, that's the role of pain for me in the general general basis. Thank you, that was very comprehensive. In terms of the role of pain in your practice, so obviously you're in an MSK setting and also pelvic floor. Can you elaborate, like, what is your relationship with pain? So what do I do with pain in my practice is um, regardless of the here, uh, the pelvic floor management, in general, pain is very much guiding my treatment. Um, obviously, I account for other markers like range of motion, uh, depending on obviously the, the pathology, um, but pain is very much uh, showing me what I'm going to have to work on again. So, for example, uh, if uh, the patient is having issues in tying her bra um, for shoulder pain, um, so that means internal rotation is going to be an issue here. So I'm going to lead her towards exercises that are going to be able to, uh, for her to do some internal rotation. Um, depending on the irritability also, uh, I will um, just go gradually to this, uh, to this motion that is a functional uh, exercise. Right, so in that sense, an nociceptive pain, a pain that's mechanical, guides you to your treatment options. What about chronic pain you talked about? There can be many factors. What do you do with that? Yeah, so chronic pain it, it is quite uh, something that we have in the practice. Uh, I would say like in the private practice I am in right now, is probably 75, 70 to 75% of my patients. What I usually do with chronic pain patients, I usually explain, I like to explain to my patients the, the role, my role as a practitioner. Um, and uh, I will actually also start defining for myself. I'm not going to share that with the patient necessarily, depending. But I would also like to, um, when I, I do the subjective assessment with the patient, so I end up defining the kind of pain that the patient has. So, and also weighing the origin. So weighing the different 
bubbles if we had to separate them through the bio psycho social the bubble so we can have someone that is overworked at his job and on having unsatisfied work but also that creates some stress and then results in having back pain for example but that's the the typical presentation that i have in my private practice for example but then um It's not only about pointing out on the finger and saying there's only the social bubble that is very much affected here. It's also to say how much percentage of each bubble is uh, including here, are participating in um, the pain in general. So again, uh, it's defining the different types of pain that and the origins of them. And also primarily really asking what their knowledge is about, what, what do they have of as an understanding of their pain. Um, some patients have been going from one doctor to another, one specialist to another, and they're confused. They have done x-rays, MRIs, and there's no clear pattern and there's no clear diagnosis that, is, that has been put in place. So Patients can be also tired and just psychologically drained with their, their health. So I'd like to ask them, their, like, what's your understanding on, on pain? What do you think you have? And then moving from that knowledge, I'd like to take them to um, a bit of pain education with a bit of decatastrophizing and going from that, if it's needed, just... Um, just taking them where they actually need. They sometimes need to, to be supported and understand how their body works. So we're actually, this is our professional, right? Like we are supposed to lead them and guide them to provide them enough information for them to just reduce their stress levels that is usually like participating so much into pain. Um, so after doing a bit of pain education, for example, I like to formulate together with them uh, achievable functional goals because obviously their common goals is not having pain anymore, right? That, that's the common goal that everyone has. Um, but actually what really matters to them is, for example, going back to go and walk their dogs with their family or being able to carry their children and play with them uh, at a certain age. So it's... Um, Yeah, all these, all these um, valuable uh, functional activities that make sense to them is, is very much uh, needed to, to be formulated. And sometimes I think a bit of help ne is needed. Also, depending on their needs, what, do I, what I do is to... Um, usually I, I, I'm not completely saying no to any manual therapy technique or quick massage because this is a way for them to get their mind and body prepared for the session it's a way for them to say okay now it's my body that I need to uh, work on and with that I really make sure that they understand that they are the one that have the biggest role to play in their rehabilitation I am not their savior they are the center of their own rehabilitation so yeah obviously After doing some manipulative techniques or any hands-on therapy, I go obviously to any form of exercise that is going back to their functional activities that they're limited in and that makes sense to them and 
put it into a, a playful setting and make it enjoyable. So then every time they, they come to see a physiotherapist, they're happy there. It just, it just rings a bell and say, okay, this is actually fun and it, this is a nice person. So creating a bond with their, your patient is also very important. So exercises, functional exercises that are going to go very gradually. Uh, so gradual exposure to movement um, is really important. And also just, again, remind them to decatastrophize some, some movements that might be very much embedded in their minds and without no, noticing that they're doing something differently that they should put, they're supposed to. And also, very important, um, empower the patient with facts. From the subjective and the objective examination, it's uh, for me very important to reassess these markers. So were you able to um, carry your laundry bag? How was it this time? Or do you have any prompts, any patient-reported outcome measures um, that could be reassessed? any other physical uh, assessment markers that are always useful. So then the patient really see it also from an ob in an objective way that actually his pain, his pain is doing better. So yeah. I love how you first explore patients' pain beliefs before just jumping into uh, you know, some sort of pain education. You get to know them, they have the opportunity to express themselves. You try to build a rapport with them, you try to explore their functional goals and gradually expose them to, back to a functional activity and that, I think that's really amazing. So you practice in Switzerland, but you're all the way here in the Canadian Physiotherapy Association Conference. So we talked a little bit and I was able to get to know you a little bit. You're quite international as a person. Do you think the approach to pain or pain beliefs differ between different places? What are your thoughts on the cultural differences impact on how we approach pain, if you have any thoughts? Mm, so unfortunately, I haven't been able to work in Canada yet. <laughs> Maybe one day. Um, so I'm not so sure how you approach pain here in private practices or any public um, setting, but I think the way we approach pain and patients in general in the musculoskeletal world, uh, it's very much similar to Canada. Uh, I think it also can really be different from one practitioner to another. So. I know colleagues that are really not comfortable in talking about psychosocial aspects and factors that might play a big role into the patient's pain. So unfortunately, they're um, very much st sticking to a biomechanical model only. And so that's um, unfortunate because they, they don't assess everything. So they are not um, as straightforward as they should so, but I think all in all, it, it, that varies a lot. Um, you can find physiotherapists that are pretty much assessing everything and, and treating everything. So, yeah. That's the same in Canada, I would say. You know, mm -hmm. there are a variety of practitioners, those who are more aware of the biopsychosocial side and those who are more inclined towards the biomedical side and... There are also those who are very inclined to the psychosocial side. Mm -hmm. So 
Okay. In your context, what is the value of physiotherapy? So for me, the value of physiotherapy is truly helping people. We have a profession that is, for me, bridging the gap between many different professionals. We are professionals that spend so much time with patients that we're getting to know their, we're understanding their issues much better than um, a GP or any other medical profession, like medical uh, specialist. And yeah, I think we, we do play a big role in rehabilitating and helping these people fully. And we're also most of the time accounting, their, as we say, the, the psychosocial aspects, which usually, unfortunately, in the medical field is very much discarded. Um, how many patients uh, have been going hand into hands of specialists here and there and what they only needed was to address those psychosocial components instead of having to do I, even surgery sometimes, which obviously at, at some point the surgery was not even useful. So yeah, and that's even more harm done than anything and, and cost, like, costly for the society on top of that. So yeah, I think our role as a physiotherapist is very much bridging all this, this gap that is encountered in the different specialties because we are we do work in in the health right and and health is getting more and more specialized but we have to account for the fact that we have to see the patient as a whole and um, with that I wanted to give you an example um, I, I have a patient that I see in the um, urogynecological division and so this patient of mine is a lady that has had now her third child through a C-section. She's a lady that is fairly overweight and um, she has had COVID in, like, during the pandemic. And since then, she got a cough that is pretty much chronic because it's, uh, it's impairing her lifestyle and, and her quality of life as she cannot sleep properly. Um, she's coughing pretty much every minute and um, after having given a, a third time birth to a kid um, you can imagine the consequences on the pelvic floor so um, this lady has been coughing from the beginning of my the management with her for her pelvic floor issues which started to be incontinence of a few drops of urine um, while she was coughing um, and not all the time, but it happened uh, from time to time. Today, even if we are treating, if, if we've been treating and assess and addressing her abdominal and pelvic muscles, she has unfortunately had signs and symptoms that were worse uh, into her bladder function or pelvic function. So now, instead of having a few drops, she has the equivalent of a glass of water that she cannot hold anymore when she's coughing. And she has been seeing her GP. Uh, GP has sent her to see a pneumologist and they have done an x-ray, they have done multiple tests. 
And since then, she was given some cortisone that helped her to reduce her symptoms, but they're still pretty much there. So it reduced by, I don't know, 20%, but the coughing is still there. It's still present. And there's another factor that I hope it's not the case, but my patient is also from an immigrant country. And I have the feeling sometimes some, some of these patients are, are not taking into consideration as much as uh, local patients. And so um, because of the desperation of my patient, I thought, okay, I actually need to stand up for this patient. So I decided to take the time to write a report to the GP and address these uh, different signs and symptoms that are there are with the objective markers and tests that are showing that we need to address this problem with a further a deeper search in the pneumology and also send her see a how do you say that um the specialist of the bladder um i don't know if there's urologue in french but <laughs> i'm not sure what's the, the term in english again but yeah that's something that was not she wasn't seen by any any specialist of the bladder yet so I've done this report and hopefully this will be heard um, so again it's uh, everything is about taking the patient into its whole context and helping to address these these problems because obviously if I'm not if we're not treating the cough the bladder and the, the pelvic function is not going to get better so I can be do giving her all kinds of exercises, but if this is not addressed, well, I cannot do anything. Well, thanks for sharing that story. It really goes to show how physiotherapy is at a prime position to provide holistic care because we spend time with patients, get to know them, and we can advocate for them. For sure. And it's really admirable that you take the time to write the report, to reach out to the GP, to stand up for the patient, as you said. That's wonderful. I hope this will have a, uh, continue to have a good outcome. Uh, Hopefully, yes. And maybe one day we will be paid for writing reports down. <laughs> <laughs> it is so important to do that, but not everyone does that because it takes extra time. It takes extra effort, and not everyone just have that, you know, sense of how do we better advocate for patients. So I hope through, if you're listening to this podcast, know that there are ways to advocate for patients beyond only in the realm of physiotherapy. That's great. Any final words you want to say before we end this interview? Well, Tiffany, it was a pleasure meeting you in this Congress, and uh, I was glad to be part of this podcast. So thank you very much again, and have a lovely stay. It's my honor to have you on this episode. Thank you so much. So we're at the end of this podcast, and it's my absolute pleasure to have Simona, my very, very good friend, to be interviewed it's been a pleasure to travel with you and go to Congress with you and get to know you. So thank you for the time you spent with me and bearing with me. <laughs> okay, let's do a little more formal-ish introduction of yourself. 
So hello, thank you for that very nice introduction, Tiffany. It's been an absolute pleasure being in your company and going to Congress with you and being a part of all the amazing things you do and seeing how you're growing as a physio and putting yourself out there. So that's amazing. So yeah, my name is Simona Kukruzovic. I am a first year physiotherapy student uh, with Tiffany at U of T. Um, and yeah, I thought I'd, I'd come on here and talk a bit about, um, my experience with pain and everything. Yeah. So, so Tiffany's been, uh, holding her mic up in the air for hours on end today at Congress. And, uh, she had severe back pain after acute onset back pain. (laughs) Um... So uh, she's been struggling with that. So I'm like, girl, you got to figure out your body mechanics. This is this is what we do as physios. You can't uh, injure yourself before you're before you're even done school. So she's working on it. Her arms on a armrest currently, and we'll see. Well, I'll I'll ask her about her pain rating scale <laughs> after this uh, interview. I figured. Oh yeah. I had to lie down right after the last interview at Congress. But I figured, you know, doing this for Paincast, like experiencing pain through Paincast, maybe, maybe worth it. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think that works. <laughs> All right. Well, Simona, from a year ago entering physiotherapy school till now, how has your view on pain changed? What is your view now? So... From entering physio school and just coming off our first placement, I think we've, um, you just really see how pain shows up in different ways and how patients react to pain in different ways. Um, And how it really not only takes, of course, a great physical toll on them, but a mental, very big mental strain on them. And um, in order for uh, physio sessions to be really uh, useful and really uh, be able to progress, it's definitely important to be able to manage that pain beforehand. So a lot of things, I was in a float placement at a hospital, so I was cardio rest completely. And um, a lot of the things we did was we had to make sure we timed sessions with patients with pain medication just because the pain can be so debilitating that it really stops progression and really halts any sort of real progress you can have with patients. So, um, you know, a lot of the time we'd have to go in with nurses and uh, speak with the patients, see if they're okay to time there, whether it's a PCA pump or they had other medications uh, the nurses had to administer. And it was something that was very important to do. And we'd always make sure to time our sessions, whether it was 30 minutes after or however much after we needed uh, until those medications had a real effect. Um, So it just goes to show you how we manage pain through physio, but also sometimes in many cases, that pain needs to be controlled otherwise so we can progress within the physio sessions to help with that pain in the long term. That's a great point. 
in my first placement as well, I spent a significant amount of time in inpatient and outpatient neuro. And even though in a neuro context, you know, for you, even though in a cardiovascular context, pain is such a reality in patients. And one of the learning things of the first placement is how do I interact with patients' pain complaints during the session? Right. How did you do that? That's a great question, Tiffany. Um, you can kind of like what I was mentioning before. You really see the mental toll it has on patients. So it's just important to address that their pain is real and that it's valid, and we understand that. Of course, we explain we have to move, we have to get going. It's how we help with this and how we help things. Uh, heal better, and of course, risk the uh, decrease the risk of other severe complications. So you do have to work through that pain. So it's just a lot of reassurance um, when it comes to speaking with patients and saying we understand it, and you will experience some pain, and we are managing that pain as best as we can. And and right, and if we need to reassess and speak with other healthcare professionals about how we can aid that pain if it's really truly extremely debilitating. Um, even though they're still taking the medications or doing what they need to do. Um, it's, it's part of our role as physiotherapists to really assess that and see how we can help um, them get that under control. So again, yeah, just making sure you're listening to what your patients are saying and not taking their pain for granted. And, and I've read studies as well that spoke about women and how women's pain are often under kind of valued and not taken as seriously. So I think it's really important to also understand our biases and um, evaluate where our biases may be. And again, make sure we're providing that best patient care. I'm kind of going in circles. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm great that you said that. Yeah. And see, first year physio students have great things to say. I hope so. <laughs> and it really goes back to uh, so Isabel, the physiotherapist practicing in Switzerland, was also talking about how, you know, we as physiotherapists have the time that we can spend with patients to listen to them, to get to know them, to provide holistic care to them and advocate for them. And I think we're here touching on very similar points because we're the person who is taking the patient for a walk and we can see the effects on pain on them right. tangibly and how do we advocate for them through our time there. So that's, a, that's great. Yeah. The value of physiotherapy in all sorts of contexts. Exactly, agreed. <laughs> okay, thank you so much, Simona. Thank you very much for having me, Tiffany. This has been great and I'm honored to be here. I'm honored to have you. Thank you. That concludes our episode of Interviewing Physiotherapists About Pain. Thank you for listening to this episode of Paincast. It has been really fun for me doing these interviews, so I hope you enjoyed the episode and found it interesting. To support our podcast, please subscribe and rate the podcast on Spotify or Podbean and share it with your network. Check out the other episode, episode number 9, where I interviewed 10 leaders in our profession during Congress. Stay tuned for future episodes on pain and physiotherapy.
Thank <laughs> you.